Did you know there is the equivalent of a Swiss army knife for the mind? Today we consider distant self-talk, toxic positivity, rituals, thought loops, and F-18 pilot, Green Spaces, David Letterman, verbal working memory, solitary confinement in Alcatraz, and how hacks of the mind can control the internal chatter of your consciousness. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. Oh my life, watching America. Oh my life, it's in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. Oh, 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 oh. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. Yes, 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 she introduced the show, but you're not good enough. You don't measure up to this. Come on, don't Listen again, you pumped up idiot. Try stop it, you can't do this before. Oh, aren't we special? You think you're good? Oh, and so great, and so clever. Talk to the people who do what you're doing. Come on, I'm in the studio, and as my engineer can see, I have a gleaming smile from side to side, and that's because of my guest, Dr. Ethan Cross. He's written a book, his latest work, entitled Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. Now, I should point out that he is a magna cum laude graduate of the University of Pennsylvania and also the bearer of an earned PhD in psychology from Columbia University. His specialty is social effective neuroscience, uh, particularly in relation to self-control regarding emotions. He is also a professor at the University of Michigan and the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory at the same campus. It is my utter delight to welcome you, Dr. Cross, to Watching America. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this conversation, and thanks for that uh, very generous introduction. Well, I I can even become uh, more uh, affirmative about your talents. Uh, You've received rave reviews for the work. Angela Duckworth, for instance, said this is a landmark book that would change the way you think about human nature. Required reading for all. And then not to be outdone, Susan Cain wrote regarding your book, Chatter is the groundbreaking and transformative book the world needs now. Well, I don't think it's possible to get much higher praise than that. Um, let me just begin, if I may, with your, your point of origin, which, as I understand, it was Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, that is, that is where I'm from. And if you had known me maybe 20 years ago, I might sound a little different in the way I, I, I used to speak. Um, my accent has changed over the years. Well, you know, they say, you know, you can take the boy out of the country, et cetera. So, but can you take the boy out of Brooklyn, but not the Brooklyn out of the boy? Yeah. You know, there are moments where I regress. If I see a slice of pizza or am insulted (laughs) while driving on the road, you, you may see my inner Joe Pesci, Robert De Niro come out. All right. (laughs) I love it. I, I lived in the Northeast for a long time. So I love New York pizza, real genuine New York pizza. Um, your dad was a significant influence on you. Uh, your dad was a, a person who, although not with formal education, was very much self-educated. Didn't get a college degree. Uh, no shame in that. But he uh, was a voracious reader, as you have said, and he was particularly interested in Eastern philosophy. And as a result, he kind of conveyed, either intentionally or perhaps unintentionally, the importance at times of adversity becoming introspective. Uh, did that have a lasting mark on your life? It did. Um, you know, from the time I was around three years old, my dad used to tell me whenever something bad happens, the the way to deal with a problem in life is to turn your attention inward, 
try to get to the bottom and find the what he would call the kernel of truth. Uh, he was a little bit dramatic. And, and essentially, you know, the advice was go inside, figure out a solution and move on. And that was a tool that really served me well throughout my childhood and adolescence. I'd get rejected by girls I'd ask out on dates or, you know, get into an argument with a friend or my mom or my dad. I'd do what my dad told me. I'd introspect. I'd, I'd get to the bottom of the situation and I'd move on. Then I got to college at the University of Pennsylvania and I took my first psychology class and a light bulb went off when we got in the middle of the semester to the topic on introspection. I went into that class thinking, you know, I've been living and breathing this stuff for the past 15 years because my dad and I had spent so much time talking about it. But when we started getting into the science of introspection, I learned that Number one, a lot of people do in fact do exactly what my dad had told me to do when they experience adversity. But for a lot of the people, a lot of the time, introspecting doesn't actually help them. It often backfires and makes them feel worse. They end up worrying and ruminating and catastrophizing what I call chatter. They get stuck in these negative cycles of of thinking and feeling, these thought loops that make their problems seemingly worse. And for me, I just became fascinated about this idea that we have this capacity, this ability to use our mind to solve problems. But when we need to use that most, or when, you know, seemingly when we needed to use it most, when we're angry, when we're anxious, when we're depressed, we can't use this tool. And so why is it? Why does that happen? Why does introspection backfire? And are there ways of 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 helping people harness this tool. That's what I went to graduate school to try to figure out. So the short answer to your question is, yeah, my dad did play an outsized role in my life and and he continues to play a role, his early messages in what I do now. Before we get into the main body of your book, which I'm eager to do, I'd like to ask a foundational question regarding introspection. What is the difference between introspection and, if you will, self-absorption? Uh, we encounter people who may be introspective, but can it not easily fall into a state of self-absorption? Well, I think I think in in a certain to a certain extent, we're we're talking um, with self-absorption. We're talking about how how immersed you become uh, in your introspections, and also what you're focusing on when you introspect. So, introspecting means basically thinking about thinking, turning your attention inward and thinking about uh, the thoughts that are going through your head, what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. We can do that for a variety of reasons. We can introspect to figure out how we could improve ourselves, to try to solve problems, to try to figure out how we're going to manage something. We can turn our attention inward to remember interesting things from the past and imagine you know, fun things in the future. Whether that's all, you know, self-absorption. When I think of self-absorption, I think instead of being overly obsessed with yourself in a way that is narcissistic and and counterproductive, I think introspection is a much much broader concept. Well, let's talk about the inner voices. Um, you had a very unsettling experience. Um, you were uh, rightfully positioned in a uh, network situation on television where you had a huge mammoth audience of millions. And yet uh, it was also the cause for you to receive a very much unwelcomed letter. You received a letter, a vile letter at that, spewing invectives, uh, threats, and the ugliest of epithets towards you. Uh, Clearly, it was dangerous. You went to uh, authorities to seek help not very reassuring about how you would be able to defend yourself or help yourself. It was the proverbial, you know, we really can't do anything until something happens to you type of situation. And you had fretful nights where you could not sleep. And finally, you had to devise some method by taking control of your thinking, lest you possibly, at least in the short term, uh, go slightly mad. How did you arrive at what to do and what was the process? Well, you know, it was interesting in that instance, uh, I was really uh, experiencing chatter in a way that I had never experienced it before for those few nights after I received that that threatening letter. And 
at one point I, I basically just thought to myself, you know, I was experiencing all sorts of, of, for lack of a better term, nutty thoughts, right? At one point I started thinking about, you know, are, are there bodyguards around that specialize in protecting academics? I mean, you know, if ever there were a, a ridiculous thought, the idea that there's a cottage industry that has sprouted up around bodyguards protecting academics, like it doesn't exist. So when I, when I started thinking about things like that, um, I stumbled on a tool to help with my chatter, a tool that we've since gone on to do a lot of research on. Essentially, what I did is I said to myself, using my own name, Ethan, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? Um, and talking to myself in that moment, silently in my head, using my own name and you, that really rerouted the the internal dialogue I was engaged in. It it made it helped me break me out of this tunnel vision, like, oh my God, what am I going to do in this situation? This letter, it's scary. My my daughter is vulnerable. My wife, how have I gotten us into this mess? And instead it's, let's look at the big picture, Ethan. You got a letter. Lots of people get threatening letters. They usually blow over. You're going to manage this. Here's what you do. I started communicating to myself like I would be giving advice to other people. We now know that people are much, much better at giving advice to others than they are taking their own advice. And what we've learned is that language provides us with a, a type of hack or a way of helping us give ourselves advice like we were talking to someone else. And it involves using our own names and other non-first person pronouns, words like you or he, she. When you use your own name to try to coach yourself through a problem, it automatically shifts your perspective. You're now giving advice to that friend of yours who you can be more objective about their situation and dole out more constructive feedback. And so that's what helped me in that instance. I wasn't, uh, to be to be clear, strategic about using that tool. It wasn't at the time a tool that was in my repertoire. It's a technique that I just stumbled on in that instance. And we've since been looking around and you actually see lots of people resorting to this tool. We call it distant self-talk. Uh, a lot of people resort to this tool when under stress without really knowing why they're doing it. There's, a, there's an example I talk about in my book about LeBron James when he was really facing a very difficult emotional decision about whether to stay with one team or move to another early on in his career. He says, he says to himself, I had to do what is best for LeBron James. LeBron James has got to make the decision. So he's switching out of the first the first person into using his own name to coach himself through a difficult circumstance. You know, Jennifer Lawrence, the actress, she was struggling in a New York Times interview several years ago. She stopped, she paused, and she said to herself, come on, Jennifer, get your act together. This is not therapy. So a lot of people seem to stumble on this tool. Now that we have science to explain how it works, the value of that is it gives us the possibility to be a lot more deliberate with how we use that tool in our lives. And, and that's true not only of distant self-talk, but the 25 or six other tools I talk about in the book as well. Knowing what those tools are, how they function, that can be really empowering because it, it gives us uh, an assortment of things we can do uh, to help us help break us out of a chatter fit when we find ourselves in it, Doctor Cross, may I call you Ethan? Incidentally, I, I would I would love that. Okay, great, um, Ethan. I I remember back going back into the eighties and perhaps even before that, um, the concept of self talk and the self affirmation, and you would find this in various areas of of uh, social parlance and the idea of of affirming oneself with, with the inner voice, retraining the inner voice. Um, what is the difference between being self-affirming in your self-talk versus being a victim of your own propagandistic outlook, if that makes sense? Well, you know, self-affirmations can be useful at times, but the notion that you should only have positive self-talk, which is uh, really, I think it remains a dominant message in popular culture. Uh, you know, this is not something that I endorse per se. Mm. And I think there are instances of it being 
being harmful. Uh, it bleeds into the notion of toxic positivity, which I think mm. is now increasingly in the spotlight. So I'm a proponent of the view that emotions are functional. In emotions themselves, whether they be positive or negative, we, we have evolved the ability to experience emotions for a reason. So anxiety in small doses is an elegantly adaptive experience. It's, it's a, you know, I have a, I have a talk coming up. It's a high stakes presentation. I'm beginning to experience little bursts of anxiousness. That's a good thing, right? That motivates me to carve out some time to work on preparing myself for that presentation. We don't want to rid ourselves of the ability to experience negativity. What we do want to do is make sure that our negative reactions don't become more chronic, which, you know, that we don't end up perseverating on our negativity in ways that define chatter. That can be really harmful. And and I'll take it one step further. In a lot of our studies, uh, and this is true of research from my lab, but others as well, when we look at different strategies that are useful for helping break people out of a state of of chatter, being consumed by rumination and worry, um, you know, we we test whether certain strategies can help people deal with the adversity they're experiencing more effectively in ways that allow them to move on. The strategies that we look at, they don't transform the situation into one that is the 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 you know. I don't know, culinary equivalent of a warm cup of tea and a, and a hot scone. Your, your accent is priming my love of, of some um, <laughs> English goodies. But, you know, when, when I, for example, when we do studies on distant self-talk and we say, you know, right before people have to do something really challenging that they're stressed out about, try to coach yourself through the problem using your own name. It's not like we instantly say, all right, Ethan, everything's going to be okay. You're a wonderful human being. Just love yourself. That's not what people are saying. Instead, it's, all right, this is a really stressful situation, but you can handle it. You know, there are other situations. And even if you screw up, it'll be okay. We're we're shifting the way people are thinking about this, but we're not making them just feel happy and good. They're still feeling negative, but the, the intensity of that negativity is going down. They're being more objective. And that is very, very different from the notion that, the moment we find ourselves experiencing something negative, we have to transform it into a positive. That's not what I'm advocating or what I talk about in the book. You know, in the book, I tell the story uh, at the very end. I tell the story of uh, a group of individuals who each year are born with the inability to experience physical pain by virtue of a, of a blip in, in the way their genes work, a genetic polymorphism, yes. mutation yes. that changes the way. They can't feel pain. You know what happens to them? They uh, die young. They die young, right? Exactly. Sorry, rhetorical question. I, I didn't let you answer. They, they, <laughs> they put their hand in, in a flame and, and they don't know, they don't have the signal to pull that hand away. Or they scratch a mosquito bite that's itchy and they don't know when to stop scratching. So they break the skin and get infected. This is, an ex- this is I think, a wonderful example of why we have evolved to be able to experience pain. It serves a function. That's true of anger. It's true of anxiety. It's true of sadness as well. So what we don't want to do is rid our lives of the ability to experience those negative emotions. What we do want to do is make sure that we experience them in small doses without them clouding our experience over time in ways that can be really harmful. Does that, does that, does that get at your question? Yeah, sufficient? it does. I, I'm thinking about the fact that we have a, a society, a culture that is ob- obsessed really with uh, wanting a self-anesthesia to avoid all pain. And as you've aptly pointed out, pain is a necessity of life. And also, if one takes a degree of stoicism, if you can anticipate some pain or discomfort, then you then you can cope. Um, I think it's unrealistic. Uh, I'm thinking of David Letterman, who once said that for 30 years of doing the David Letterman show, and Paul Schaefer would invite him to come out, you know, and here's David Letterman, and the the curtains would open and he'd walk out. And he said that he never got over nervousness. He never got over feeling um, 
rather uptight, but he learned to welcome it and harness it. And you use that term yourself about harnessing in the very title of your book. Let me just mention the book. It's called Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Well, David Letterman did repeatedly, and he said that he actually began to recognize the nervous state that he had as an ally. And he said to himself, self-talk here, I will welcome this sensation and feeling. And it, it paid great dividends for him, obviously, with a career that lasted some 30 years. If I could just jump in on that. Point, yeah, please. Um, it's a wonderful point, And it's a wonderful illustration of one of the tools I talk about in the book, which is uh, many people experience stress. And, and, and when it morphs into more chronic, say, chatter before giving speeches and things of that sort, and, and then has a physiological component associated with that experience. And one tool that has been shown to be useful is rather than think, oh my God, I, you know, I, I don't have an appetite anymore and I'm a little nauseous, rather than thinking about interpreting those bodily cues as a sign that you're in trouble, another way is to interpret those bodily cues as, hey, this is my body helping optimize the way I'm going to respond in this situation. Because, because in a in a threatening situation, right, you don't want to be eating per se. You want to have your energy being devoted to other places in your body. And so if you reframe how you interpret your bodily cues, this is my body working the way it's supposed to, to make me perform best. People who reinterpret their bodily cues in that way end mm. up performing better under stress um, than those who think about those bodily cues as a sign as uh, as a sign of impending doom. Um, I will say that, you know, apropos the, the Letterman principle that you just uh, outlined, Alan, that, you know, there are some, ins I, I give a lot of talks for, for as part of what I do. And the, you know, the stakes involved in the talks vary from really low stakes to higher stakes. And when the, when the talks are lower stakes, I often don't get any blip of nervousness or anxiety. And you know what? I don't think I perform as well. Mm. I perform yes. better when I have that little edginess that I have to that I have to grapple with. I think I find it energizing, and there is in fact some science to show that arousal, the uh, 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 the right amount of physiological arousal, can actually improve performance in high stress situations. And so, so again, the negative stuff can be really helpful. And um, you know, I think it's just the message that we always need to be positive and we're failing if we're not, I think that gives people an unattainable goal that can ultimately be really counterproductive. I'm very eager to go through the 26 different elements of uh, uh, really tools that you provide for your audience. But before I do, I want to ask you about the origin of voices. Obviously, we have uh, people with neuroses, uh, psychosis of different forms, uh, schizophrenia and what have you, and, and we'll put that in a very far off category. Uh, we do have internal rumor, uh, 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 voices that are, are, are constantly blackguarding us, perhaps from our childhood. And then there's uh, some voices that can't be easily discerned or, or identified, let me put it that way. An instance, I had a friend who was an F-18 pilot. And uh, to, my apologies to all F-18 pilots, because I'm probably going to screw this up. So I'm just giving you the general gist of what happened. He was on a carrier deck and he was catapulted off in the jet and he'd gone through, you know, years and years of training. He knew exactly what to do, how to work with the ailerons and what have you. And there was a procedure where you hit evidently for an afterburner to accelerate speed very, very quickly. And he told me that he heard a distinct voice in his head, but loud say, no. And he, he was startled by it. He didn't understand it. And so he didn't go to the afterburner. And what he did was he looked at his fuel gauge and it was working backwards counterclockwise. And he realized that he was losing fuel immediately. Had he gone for the afterburner, he told me, he would have blown up and been killed. So he radioed mm. in and came immediately back to the deck and landed safely. Where did that voice come from? Is that an awareness that he's not aware of? Is it something divine? What's your interpretation? Uh, probably the former as opposed to the latter. Um, although uh, hard to rule out the latter. But what we know about the voice in our head is it doesn't serve one function. Um, so I like to think about the voice in our head as a, as a kind of Swiss army knife of the mind. First, just to break it down and to strip this, you know, the voice in our head 
it has a lot of connotations associated with it, as you pointed out in the beginning of, of your question, linking it with psychosis and other kinds of um, other kinds of psychiatric uh, conditions. But what we're really talking about when we talk about the voice in our head is the ability to silently use language. I think of language as a tool. It's a tool that serves our species and many others very, very well. And we use language not only to communicate with other people, but we've learned that we use language to communicate with ourselves as well, although that has received uh, much less attention over the years. If you think about the different ways in which we use language silently or this voice in our head, it's really astounding. Uh, At the most basic level, we use this voice in our head to do things like keep information active in our minds. We call this verbal working memory. Working memory is a basic system that uh, is, is part of how the human mind, that governs the human mind. So if I asked you, Alan, to re- rehearse my phone number, uh, 2090501, rehearse it in your head right now. Just say mm-hmm. it a few times mm-hmm. to memorize it. Could you do that? I've got the latter part in my mind. Yeah, I did just did that. Yeah. Okay. What What about if I if I asked you just as another example of this working memory to, uh, I want to make sure you know how to pronounce my name. So just repeat silently after me, Ethan, Ethan, Ethan. Can you do that silently? Yes, I've just done it. Yes. Okay. Well, congratulations. You've just used your inner voice. We use the, our inner voice to keep information active in our heads in this way all the time right? So that's one way that we use our inner voice, but we also use it in lots of other contexts as well, some of which come closer to the, um, it was at F-19, F-17, F-15. F-8, out of all the examples I give you, I, I choose the wrong numbers. <laughs> the right. F-18 pilot, yes. there, you know, we know that our inner voice will often perk up when we have to do something. So in a self-regulatory context, like, oops, got to pick up the children from school. We'll hear a little voice pop up reminding us of a goal that we need to complete. Or in the case of this F-18 pilot, perhaps don't go, right? That's our inner voice perking up in a regulatory context, a context where control is needed. The inner voice has been shown to be active in that context. We often rely on this voice to coach ourselves through problems. Like when we're working on difficult puzzles, like hey, put this piece here and then do this, put that here, like when you're trying to put something together. So that is what comes to mind with respect to this um, friend of yours. Uh, But but I will just say, we use our inner voice for lots of other things too, you know, consistent with this idea that it's a Swiss army knife. When When I'm thinking about a presentation I have to give a week from now or a month from now, I'll often rehearse in my mind what I'm gonna say. I'll, I'll hear myself give the speech. And then I'll actually hear what an audience member is going to ask me and I'll respond to them. So we use our inner voice to simulate the future, to make sure we can navigate that future well. And of course, we use our inner voice to, to, to make stories that help us understand our experiences and who we are. So things happen. We don't quite understand it. Why was I rejected by that, by that publisher and student and my child? That, that would be a really bad day. Uh, well, I'll use my inner voice to tell a story, to weave together those experiences in a way that allow that that makes sense to me, so that I understand what I've experienced and can move on. So, um, so we use this inner voice for for many many different things, and it's a huge asset. And it's precisely why when people ask me, "Hey, Ethan, hey, Doctor Cross, this inner voice it won't shut up. It's driving me nuts. How can I silence it?" It's why I tell them, you don't want to silence it. You want to figure out how to harness it. If it stops serving you well, well, the challenge is to figure out how can we make it serve you better. You've just heard the voice of Dr. Ethan Cross, and you'll continue to hear it on Watching America. He is my guest today, for which I'm very delighted. His latest book is entitled Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, and Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Let's get to the specificity of how to harness it. You do have 26 tools that you uh, reference in the book, uh, all extremely interesting and valid. But if we were to take uh, perhaps the five cardinal or primary ones that come to mind readily for you, what would they be? Um, Well, 
Uh, I can easily give you those. But before I do, I'll just say, I think it's useful to, you know, when you hear about 26 different tools, my God, how do you like sort through them? Um, I like to give people a framework for thinking about where to find these tools. And there are three buckets that I like to categorize them into. One set of tools involve things that you could do on your own. These are basic thinking strategies, often that involve psychological distance that can be helpful for breaking us out of the kind of tunnel vision that characterizes chatter. When we experience chatter, we zoom in on our problems really narrowly. All we think about is the awfulness of what we're experiencing. And what these tools do is they help us zoom out. They help us see the bigger picture, the broader perspective in ways that can be quite helpful. So that's one category of tools. Another example of tools involve other people. And what these tools deal with is how can you leverage your relationships with other individuals in your lives to help you work through your chatter. And also, if you're on the flip side of the equation, to help them manage their chatter. So that's another bucket. And then the final category of tools I find really intriguing. These are what I call environmental tools, ways of interacting with our physical spaces that can be quite useful for managing the conversations that happen that we have with ourselves. So now that you have that framework, let me back up and I'll give you my top five. I've already described to you one tool that I personally re- rely on quite a bit, distant self-talk, coaching myself through a problem, like I were talking to someone else and using my name to help me do it. Um, that's one distancing tool. Another distancing tool I rely on a lot for acute stressors is something called temporal distancing or what you might call mental time travel. So if I'm struggling with something, take take the pandemic, and I'm really stressed out about having to do interviews via Zoom and teach via Zoom and do both of those things while my little kids are are chomping away at my ankles out of view of the camera sometimes, and the gardeners come as I'm trying to work, and all these things that you know make life really challenging and awful right now. Not to mention the health, the health fears. Um, it's easy to get caught up in in chatter around that kind of stuff. What temporal distancing involves is imagining how you're going to feel sometime in the future. Uh, after the pandemic fades. So, so I'll often think, how am I going to feel next September when I and everyone I'm lo- I love is vaccinated, when I'm back to traveling, when I'm teaching and interacting with students in person? When I do that, when I engage in that mental simulation, what that makes clear is that what I'm going through right now, as awful as it is, it's temporary. It will eventually pass. And when I have that recognition, that gives me hope. And we know that hope can be a very powerful tool for for helping suppress our chatter. Um, I can also do temporal distancing by going back in time, by like I'll often think of the pandemic of 1918 and how how awful that was. And actually it was even worse by most standards than what we're going through now. More people dead, no Zoom, no takeout, lots of hardship. Guess what? We got through that pandemic. It really stunk when we were in it, but we did get through it. And we didn't just get through it. We thrived once we were done in the roaring 20s. And so uh, we'll get through this as well. So that's another small distancing shift that can help reframe how we're thinking about our adversity in ways that break us out of a, a spell of chatter. So those are those are two things you could do on your own. It's very interesting because uh, people who have been in solitary confinement, uh, I once uh, interviewed and spoke to a man who was in Alcatraz and uh, in solitary confinement, and I said, how did you survive? He said, I did two things. One of the things is he took a button that was totally pitch black. He took a button off his garment and he would just turn around like eight times and then he'd throw the button not knowing where it went. But then he would then go and reach for the button and spend maybe a couple of days trying to find where that button fell to give him an activity. The other Mm. thing was temporal distancing that you're talking about. He would think to the future or transport himself to the past. In relation to that, very briefly, I don't want to get as hung up on this, but we're also told quite readily nowadays to be present. Is it possible to be present as we're so often, you know, have advocated to, to us and also practice temporal distancing? Well, or are um, they mutually exclusive? I would say they're, they, I would say they are different. And, um, you know, being present, 
So one, let me back up, Alan. One theme of the book is that there are no single magic pills, no ah, silver yes. bullets, single yes. strategies that help all people across all situations. And I think this, you know, talking to people from various industries um, uh, about chatter and wellness um, and how to how to improve wellness and well-being, uh, I see this message pop up over and over again. This this idea that there are single things you can do that are magically going to help. So in the toolkit, um, you've got the hammer, you've got the screwdriver, you've got the plane, all to use at different times. Exactly. And, you know, with respect to being in the moment, being in the moment can be great at times. It's a tool that can be useful at times. When I'm at the playground with my kids, hanging out and having fun, I want to be in the moment. I don't want to be lost in time. But one of the virtues of the human condition is that we possess the ability to, to travel in time in our mind. We spend between one half and a third of our waking hours not in the moment. Think about what that allows us to do. It allows us to learn from our, our mistakes in the past. It allows us to plan for the future. It allows us to experience nostalgia. It allows us to fantasize. We wouldn't be where we are as a species if we were always in the moment, right? Other animals are always in the moment and they are they are beholden to the urgencies of the situation. They see things and then they respond without taking into account future implications. So the notion that you always want to be in the moment, which um, is somehow how this is is has penetrated popular culture. I think this this is another overstated, one of these uh, perhaps overstated, yes. unattainable, right. and if it were possible, it wouldn't be productive. Yes. What instead I think we want to figure out how to do is we have this marvelous ability to travel in time in our mind. We want to figure out how can we make people better mental time travelers. Often what happens is we do travel in time, but we get stuck. We get stuck ruminating or we get stuck worrying about the future. And when we get stuck, the question is, well, what do you do? Well, in some instances, it might be good to refocus on the moment. But in, in other cases, it might be good to use other tools to just allow you to travel in time more effectively. So um, so that's my take on being in the moment. It is one tool. It's a ratchet amongst a, what I think is a, a much more elaborate toolbox that we have the possibility of possessing. Well, let's delve into your kit again and pull up yet another tool. Okay, so let's go to, to people and talk about a, a people tool because I think there's another... Um, opportunity there to correct a misnomer that is very popular right now, which is the idea that when you're experiencing chatter, the way to deal with it is to find someone to vent to, find someone to just un, un, unleash the emotions, get it out. There's been lots of research on venting. And what we know is that venting to another person about how you're feeling and what happened to you, this does wonders for our relationships with the people we're talking to. It, when you find someone who's there to listen to you and you share your emotions, that strengthens how close you feel to that person, your friendship bonds. And there's no doubt that there's benefit to that experience, to having good friends and feeling close with them. But if all you do is, is talk about what happened to you and what you felt, you leave the conversation feeling very good about your relationship with the person you are talking to or talk to but you haven't done anything to change the way you've thought about the situation. So you're left still stumbling, still spinning, still experiencing chatter. And in fact, research shows that venting or what we often call this co-rumination where two people are revving each other up, this can predict things like anxiety and depression, elevated levels of both of those states over time. The best kinds of conversations between people when it comes to chatter are conversations that actually do two things. You, someone comes to you, they specifically want your help managing the chatter. You do want to first find out about what, what's going through their head. What do they experience? It is important to learn about their feelings. Give them an opportunity to express. But at a certain point during the conversation, what you want to do is nudge them to focus on the bigger picture, nudge them to shift their perspective. So, you know, if you and I were talking, Alan, you're telling me about this terrible guest from the Midwest, University of Michigan, in fact, who is giving you a lot of trouble on the <laughs> nay, interview. Nay, 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 I deny such such assertions. I, I might say to you something like, well, you know, you've, you've done so many of these interviews. Like, 
have you dealt with this in the past? How long has it took you to gotten over it? Did you, you know, what, what, what really worked for you to manage a situation or, or you've done so many of these interviews. It's just one, you know, let's look at the bigger picture or, you know what, Alan, I do interviews also a lot. And here's how I deal with these situations. So what I'm doing, those are different ways of just gently trying to nudge you to broaden your perspective, to break you out of that zoomed in mode that fuels chatter. Um, that's the route to being a good chatter advisor to other people. And I think the value of knowing the science here, uh, the science that delineates how to actually get help from other people when it comes to your chatter and how to help others in turn, the value is it allows us to be a lot more deliberate about how we leverage our relationships to our benefit. So when I'm experiencing chatter, I'm incredibly selective about who I talk to about it. There are many people in this world who love me. Well, I don't know. Many people in this world love me, but there are certainly some people who love me uh, quite a bit, and I love them. I don't talk to them about my chatter because I know what's going to happen is it's just going to end up a vent session that is not going to make me feel better. And in fact, will raise my blood pressure and make me feel worse. Instead, there are like three people in my personal life who are really good what I call chatter advisors, and I'll go to them with personal problems, personal chatter. When it's work-related chatter, there are four or five people who can help advise me in that situation. Both both let, listen to me, they hear what I'm feeling, but also give me sound advice. So I, I, I think about having like a board of, of chatter advisors. Companies have boards of advisors that are, you know, the company thinks really carefully about who goes on that board. The responsibility of that board is to steer a company to success. I'd argue that we all would benefit from thinking really carefully about who our own personal board of advisors are. Who are those individuals who can help steer us to success when it comes to chatter? Let me shift to the final category here Mm -hmm. about environmental tools. There there are a bunch and I find them fascinating. One tool um, involves our physical spaces, and in particular, our tendency to uh, create order in our physical spaces. When I was writing my book and experienced small blips of chatter, I I would find myself doing something very out of character for me. Uh, I would clean the house. I would organize my office. I'd wash the dishes. I'd put them carefully away. This is out of character because those people who know me know that although I'm a very clean person, Uh, I'm not really bothered by piles of books and pages and clothes on the floor uh, to the the dismay of my wife. Uh, It just doesn't bother me. But when I'm experiencing chatter, for some reason, I, I organize, I clean up. What we know is that when people are experiencing chatter, they often feel like they don't have control of their thoughts. Their thoughts are out of order. And what we've learned through science and lots of experiments is that by creating order around you, that can compensate for the lack of order you experience inside your head. So it can make you feel more in control of the situation and of yourself when you organize your spaces. And so that's one tool that's really easy to use and and, and it's it's a very common tool. It is very common for people to report cleaning when they are stressed out, but they often don't know why they do it. So that's one environmental tool. The next one, The next one would be exposure to green spaces. Um, We've learned that uh, exposing yourself, so going for a walk in nature in a safe, natural space. I say safe because if it's where I grew up in Brooklyn, green spaces tended to be synonymous with spaces (laughs) where you got mugged. So um, so you want it to be a safe green space. And if you can find a safe green space, and and this is true, by the way, of watching videos of green spaces. It provides us with the ability to restore our attention. So when we're experiencing chatter, chatter consumes our focus. It consumes our attention in ways that make it really hard for us to do anything else. And what green spaces do is they gently draw our attention away from the chatter and onto the beauty surrounding us, the trees, the shrubs, the flowers. And that gives us the the opportunity to restore the attention that we need to think well in this world. I'd like to interject an idea related to that. Uh, Many people will look for nature videos on YouTube. My wife and I have discovered, because we have two cats, that there are videos that they make for cats of birds in trees and squirrels. 
And we've mm. become quite addicted to watching them. Uh, before we go to sleep, <laughs> we will sometimes put on cat videos ourselves. And, of course, the two cats are purring. But what it does is it makes uh, elements of nature immediate and accessible, even in the midst of an evening. And uh, it's it's very soothing. Back to you, sir. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a wonderful illustration of the, of the power of the video element of this. It's grabbing your attention in ways that it's like plugging in a computer and putting that computer on on a sleep mode, allowing it to just yes. gently restore. Right. And and it you know the the data behind these these um, green space exposure results are really just astounding. I talk about, I have a chapter about this in the book. I mean, um, from so many different disciplines within science, do we see nature having true benefits for people when it comes to chatter? And their mental well-being, but but this restorative effect that re- that nature can have—that's only one pathway that explains how it works. The other thing that it does is it provides us with opportunities to experience the emotion of awe. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we have trouble explaining. So lots of people get it from nature by looking at an amazing sunset or view, or, or staring up at a tree that's been around for hundreds of years and weathered storms. It's hard to to, to a lot of people have a tough time wrapping their head around how things can be that beautiful. Um, and, and what we know is that when people experience awe, that leads to what we call a shrinking of the self. When you're contemplating something vast and, and indescribable, we ourselves feel a whole lot smaller and so do our concerns. And, and there have been benefits linked with the experience of awe when it comes to chatter. Now I should say that nature isn't the only way of experiencing awe. Um, you can get it from lots of other places too. Some people get it when they stare at a great piece of art. Some people get it when they think about humanity's accomplishments. So, uh, you know, I remember walking down the streets of New York City, staring up at skyscrapers and being filled with awe. You know, at one point we were struggling to build fires and loincloths. And yet now we figured out how to build these, these you know, mansions that go into the clouds. Um, or all-terrain vehicles for Mars. Yeah, I mean that was that was the that was the, the my last awe experience. Like we have figured out interplanetary travel. Like that is a mind blower to me. Fills me with awe. And you know, when I'm thinking about the complexity of interplanetary travel and what that says about humanity, my concerns about, you know, whether the argument with whomever is going to sort out or not, it feels a whole lot smaller by comparison. It goes along with what a friend of mine said uh, one time. A friend said, you know, Alan, we should rejoice in our smallness. Mm. And I really thought about that. And I think that's the flip side of what you're saying. Uh, allow us, allow ourselves to be awed by something greater than us, even if it be the manifestation of nature on the beach. I, we live close to the beach here. Um, or, as you say, accomplishments of humanity. Uh, and it gives one a very healthy perspective. I want to uh, be rude and just ask for one more little tool to come out of your lovely kit. Uh, the rest, folks, you're going to have to buy the book entitled Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. So now we get one more tool to look at, but there's far more in that kit. So your last one for us today, Dr. Ethan Cross. The last one would be to engage in a ritual. And this can be either a ritual that you create on your own or a ritual that our cultures have have prescribed for us. So uh, I I like to think about rituals as a type of chatter-fighting cocktail. Well, let me correct that, as a type of non-alcoholic chatter-fighting cocktail. And what I mean by that is rituals can help us when it comes to chatter through a variety of different pathways. Before I tell you what those pathways are, let me define a ritual for you. A ritual is a is a rigid sequence of behaviors that we engage in the same way each time. So, for example, you know, my Saturday morning ritual is to wake up early before anyone else in my house is up. I exercise, then I shower, then I go to the farmer's market, I go to, you know, get some produce, I go to the bakery, I go to the fish shop. I come home, I make my breakfast, I make waffles for my kids, and that's the ritual. I do it the same way each time. And it has meaning mm. doing those events at the same time. So rituals can help us in a variety of ways. First, 
a ritual is rigid and ordered. It's orderly. So in the same way that we can make ourselves feel better by cleaning up because that gives us a sense of order, a ritual is an ordered sequence of behaviors. So that often give, that also gives us a sense of control and order. Second, rigids are often uh, demanding. Like there are many steps involved in them and you've got to focus on them to, to accomplish those rituals. And so they can divert our attention momentarily away from our chatter. That can have some benefits. Uh, third, rituals often have meaning. They connect us to, to, to a sense of something broader than us, similar to that experience of awe when we're contemplating something that is that transcends the self. If you think of cultural rituals, religious rituals, I think some of those meaning-making effects that it provides are, are even greater, right? Because now it's not just about about you and your family, but it's about your culture. It's about the history of your people. It's about the universe and how the universe works. When I talk to people about rituals, I get two different kinds of responses. One response is, of course, you know, rituals. Yeah, like my religion gives me a ritual for what to do when people die, most chatter-provoking experience you can imagine, and, and, and what to do when a child is born, also a stressful experience. It makes total sense that rituals make me feel better. Just look at all the athletes who do rituals under stressful circumstances. Another group of people say, well, wait a second, rituals, cleaning order, this is what people who struggle with obsessive compulsive disorder and other kinds of psychiatric conditions, that's one of their defining features. How can this be a good thing? My answer and the way of resolving both of those responses is that rituals are a tool and a tool used in moderation in the right contexts can be very, very helpful. And that's true of all the tools I talk about in the book. But if the tools are used in the wrong context too intensely, any tool can become counterproductive. So by way of analogy, I've got a hammer in my toolbox, right? A hammer, I use that to build a house but I can also use it to destroy the house. It depends on how I use it. And so that caveat applies to all of the tools that I've talked about. Dr. Ethan Cross is a voice, an American voice, very concerned about our inner voice and how to, if you will, come to terms with it, to see it as an ally, but not allow it to be uncontrollable. Indeed, how to harness it. His book is entitled Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and Why It Matters and how to harness it. I have to tell you, Ethan, Dr. Cross, it's been a delight to have you on Watching America. I want to thank you so much for your uh, nuggets and tools that you've shared with us to improve the condition of daily experience or perhaps nightly experience for those sleep deprived and for enriching us in, in, in all regards related to that and reassuring us, mind you. So again, the book is Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters and How to Harness It. Dr. Ethan Cross, thank you so much again for being a part of Watching America. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. I want to thank you for making this program possible by your kind and generous contributions. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.